You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kasterblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Alan, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How is Dublin treating you today? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. Uh, all good here and uh, looking forward to catching up in person soon as well. I know, Miami, next week. It's going to be fun. And Kate? Big week in our industry, yes. Big week in our industry, and Katie will be there as well. So I think uh, the three of us at least, uh, hopefully some of uh, our loyal listeners will find us and we can have a chat and, and maybe a coffee. All right. Well, I mean, we have some good topics, uh, as I always say, because I, I do think generally they are good. We also have a question, uh, which was uh, good, uh, sent to us. But before we get into all of this, I'm always curious to know... What's kind of, besides all the topics, what's been on your radar? What have you paid attention to recently? Yeah, it's interesting. It's been a while since I've been on here uh, by myself. Obviously, we had the group conversation in December, but certainly, you know, it seems like quite a different uh, market from a sentiment-wise. You know, this year, we're already off to a very positive start and equities after a little bit of a dip, you know, pushing higher and with all the talk about Fed rate cuts and soft landings, uh, you know, Part of me, having been very cautious on the equity market now, is wondering, is, is there going to be some kind of blow-off, kind of melt-up or something? Everybody seems to be so bullish. So just very interesting from that perspective how sentiment has changed so much in, in the last while. So that's one thing I've just been tracking as well. I mean, part of that uh, argument is around a lot of money in, in money market funds. So uh, just curious, is there a lot of money either sitting on the sidelines or having gone into cash with the, with the high short-term interest rates in the last year that might now come into the market and we like with equities or bonds or, or where would it go. So so that's a second theme that I think is interesting. And uh, a third thing that I just came across recently was just an article there around Calsters increasing their facility to take leverage into portfolio. So this seems like more of an operational um, adjustment. They, they, they've always had an element of leverage in the portfolio uh, but they are now increasing that. Um, but it, maybe it does point to some issues. I'm not sure if issues is too strong a word around their their less liquid portfolio if they feel that they have to uh, kind of uh, increase their cash facility. So perhaps they're starting to see um, some of are maybe over allocated to to the less liquid side of the portfolio. But interesting. I mean that that's a general trend that we're seeing of some of these larger institutions and pension funds increasingly you know, using leverage and uh, uh, both from a portfolio perspective and, and from a kind of a more operational perspective. Yeah, I mean, I did notice uh, the article uh, because you sent it to me. And um, I mean, for those who haven't read the article, what it's all about is that they would like to be able to borrow up to 10%, which is $30 billion, so that they, as it says, don't have to sell out at assets at distressed levels. Now, what when you describe it, it sounds oh yeah, that's not a bad idea. That's fine. But what if these distressed assets become even more distressed? I mean, I'm thinking at some point there must be a stop loss somewhere. Is it a 
facility that would encourage uh, people to be, how should I say, a little bit too um, optimistic about the future and not really realizing that what they're invested in is is crap and uh, they need to get out. Um, so, uh, pardon my French, by the way. Yeah, so I think that that's one thing that's a little bit uh, worrying. And of course, being the second largest pension fund in the U.S., if they are, if if they go ahead and do this, this might, uh, uh, of course, um, start a trend uh, with other pensions, and then suddenly you have lots of pensions not having or not wanting to realize bad investments, and and so I think it it creates some kind of. Um, I don't know what the word is, but it's it makes it a little bit artificial that you don't have to recognize losses, and we 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 all know how how these things can go pear shaped if you start not you know recognizing uh, losses. So I, I I don't think it's a great thing, but I do understand why they want it. But uh, yeah, I mean these off these kind of private investments that are so popular, private equity now it's private credit. I mean, I guess from the trend-following world we come from, I mean, we we love liquidity. We love the fact that we can liquidate our portfolios in 24 hours, and that's just a different world. And I think in in an uncertain world, which we'll come to, I guess, in our global macro conversation, liquidity is important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about having a balance. I mean, you know, there's just been a huge, huge wave of money into private assets in the last decade, and... Uh, you know the case for it is well made, and and obviously in private credit, um, yeah. I from the data I have seen on some uh, managers' performance was good last year, but you know of course all of these strategies do well in the same environment. If if in 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 the same regime when it's a favourable, they don't do well in the negative tail event, but they all do well in 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 the rest of the time. So it's kind of uh, yeah, understandable why people have them. Um, Probably equally understandable why why tactically it may may make sense to have more leverage uh, from time to time and or the facility to borrow. But as you say, maybe uh, it has to be has to be in the right hands and and pro, pro appropriately governed and uh, overseen. I guess. Sure, of course. By the way, I mentioned it's the second largest U.S. pension fund. Um, they have done seven point two percent annualized in the last five years. And in their 22, 23 uh, year, they posted a 6.3 net return if someone uh, was interested. All right. Well, um, good to know what's been on your radar. Um, let's look at the other big thing that we always talk about. And that's kind of your big macro picture. I'm um, in a world that seems to change a lot uh, every time uh, or in between we speak. I'm curious to know um, what your thoughts are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing everybody is looking at and thinking about is this Fed pivot that's underway. Um, you know, we had uh, Chair Powell speaking in December, and I think, you know, fair to say, it really surprised people in how dovish uh, that the Fed had turned so quickly. And uh, there's a lot of speculation as to why that was the case. Was it politics? Were they kind of positioning ahead of the election this year? And are they planning on getting rates down early in the year to, to avoid kind of any conflict with the with the election, or maybe even to to boost uh, Biden's uh, uh, prospects, who who might be seem to be a bit more pro Fed independence, or less likely to, to meddle with their with their own independence. So, so kind of conspiracy theories around that, I, I guess. And all the, obviously, the inflation data has been on a, on a downward trend. We have to acknowledge that. And if you look at the kind of the PCE, the six month annualized, you know, it's down at or below target. So, so there certainly is has been a progress on on inflation. I thought I thought what we uh, got this uh, 
this month with the speech from uh, Waller was was quite interesting. He kind of gives more context to what I think is the the overall Fed thinking. And uh, you know, when I read it, it I, I felt it was a little bit self congratulatory. In a, you know, in a sense, he was kind of talking about how two years ago he made a speech about how you know we might be able to. Uh, the Fed would be able to raise rates and bring down inflation and you wouldn't see a rise in, in the unemployment rate or a significant rise. And that's what we've seen. And uh, it, it's an example of great analysis and great data and great work all around. So I thought it was maybe a little bit premature for him to be prepared or you know declaring victory and giving themselves a pat on the back. But that's certainly what, what it felt like. And it's interesting because if you read what he's saying, it's very much a case he's saying that the Fed took rates to a level that, that was restrictive enough to take the slack out of the labor market. And that slack has been unwound purely in terms of the vacancies, as opposed to, you know, we haven't seen a rise in unemployment. So the labor market's been very tight. You've had these unusually high job openings, you know, if you see that in the Jones status. So vacancies have been very high, and that's where the tightness has been seen. And they're saying they're able to tighten policies so much just to take the tightness out in that area without see, starting to see a rise in layoffs and an increase in unemployment. And then they'll be able to pivot and reduce rates to keep the economy at that level. So when you think about it, you know, it's very much this kind of, it's well, one, it's very much a labor market-centric view of the world and, and of the inflation process, which we know has failed in the last couple of years. You only have to go back to 2021 where the Fed was saying, well, we'll start to raise interest rates, you know, when unemployment stays low for, for a long time. And then subsequently, you'd expect inflation to rise. But obviously, inflation just jumped up in the first place, without that, uh, um, you know, without the unemployment rate staying very low for a long time. And now we're seeing the opposite of inflation coming down unrelated to kind of labor market developments. So it does question if their whole model is correct around inflation. But also the, this whole idea of being able to pick the exact level of interest rates and the, 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 the economy responding mechanically to it, it's just totally opposite of the view of, you know, the economy as a complex adaptive system, you know, that we always like to talk about and we heard so clearly from Bill White that time. And um, so it makes me worried that the Fed will get overconfident because it seems to have been successful in what they've done so far. Um, but, but you know, we, we all know that it's, it's, it's an almost impossible task to, to try and calibrate policy perfectly. So we'll see. I mean, I do think uh, the case he lays out is, looks reasonable, you know, for, 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 for lowering rates now because obviously policy is tight. Uh, but but you know I think it's 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 a uh, it's well, foolish is maybe a strong too strong but but you know to to think you can fine tune policy so uh, finely and um, I think we'll find in time that 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 will prove difficult to do. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think it does seem like a little bit too over optimistic about uh, their ability to control everything. He does uh, towards the end of the speech, and I quote: "Say as long as inflation doesn't rebound and stay elevated, I believe if." I believe FOMC will be able to lower the target range for the federal funds rate this year. The view is consistent with the FOMC's economic projections in December, in which the median prediction was 325 basis points cuts in 2024. Of course, um, the market didn't read that very carefully. They thought three meant six, so they went straight on <laughs> to to uh, to uh, go go for that. But anyways, um, we'll see. Uh, I think when when we had our group conversations, we all made some outrageous predictions, uh, which which will make it a bit of a challenge, I think, for the Fed to uh, to keep up. Now, before we leave this topic uh, completely, 
because we're talking about global macro issues, I, I couldn't help um, wanting to ask you a thing. I mean, this is not a political podcast, of course, um, but when it comes to politics, we have to admit that they do have an impact on the world economy and financial markets. And uh, we did have a primary election in the US uh, this week that kind of suggests that Trump may be facing off with Biden again later this year, um, even if I actually, in my outrageous predictions, uh, predicted that none of them will be on the ballot in November. So we still have to wait and see about that. But how do you think markets and economies may be impacted um, should Trump win back the White House? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, in some of the conversations I've been having on, on the Allocator and, and, and Macro Series, I've been asking that question. Um, when they, in a, they may not all have been out published yet, but um, certainly on my radar, very hard to say. It says, you know, not providing anything um, blindingly insightful here, except to say that, you know, the question I would have is that a lot of what we've seen in the last number of years has been, you know, related to Biden Bidenomics and, you know, the nearshoring, the Inflation Reduction Act, all of that focused on uh, developing kind of more manufacturing back in the U.S. Um, now you would say that that, that that's kind of consistent with a make America great again type uh, platform. So should we see any dramatic change from Trump? Um, that said, I understand from from some commentators that he's not a fan of of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, certainly, we would expect to see more protectionism. He has said before that there would be a ten percent tariff on all goods coming into the U.S. straight away. So obviously, that would be inflationary in the first instance. Um, we did see, you know, protectionism in his first term. So I think that would be uh, a very uh, reasonable assumption. I think I think you're going to see tensions around a number of um, kind of areas. One, obviously, protectionism. Two, you know, he's also said that he's going to go after his political opponents pretty much straight away once he comes into office. So, you know, wh where does that play out? You know, uh, he was kind of less um, maybe briefed as to how he could wield his power when he came in the first time, but now he knows what he can and can't do. So, so that's the second area. I think with respect to the Fed, that's a that's a third area. And I, and I think that there is a valid reason for why the Fed might be biased towards Biden because, you know, he was, uh, he did meddle a little bit uh, in, in the last term, but, but not to a massive extent. And he certainly was making comments like, you know, they've got lower rates overseas. Why can't we have that as well? So I would certainly expect to see a lot more political, um, you know, interference uh, in, 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 in monetary policy, either directly or, or, or indirectly. Um, and, and then the fourth area I would say is around debt and deficits. You know, Donald Trump doesn't strike me as the kind of person who's going to say, let's get our house in order, even if it's, uh, you know, politically, um, you know, uh, unpopular. You know, he's a populist uh, politician. So, you know, he, he, the last time he was in, he was already running a large deficit uh, when the economy was in strongly, uh, and then that carried on into COVID and carried on with Bidenomics. So you'd have to say you, prospects for you know fiscal uh, you know um, uh, conservatism would be would be low. Um, obviously, it all a lot depends on who's in the House, who has the Senate. But you know we've seen um, uh, Trump use executive orders, so I'd be pessimistic on on debt and deficit improvements, uh, and you'd have to be pessimistic on. Um, protectionism. 
That said, you know, when he got in last time, the, the day of the election in 2016, equities went down and then rallied pretty hard for, for a couple of years. So how do markets take it? I don't know, you know, but certainly they would be the themes I would be focused on in terms of the agenda and how we, how we might influence the economy and markets. Yeah, no, I think that's a good uh, checklist. Uh, now, since that was a super easy question for you, Alan, um, I'm going to uh, add another super easy question for you. And that is, what about, uh, since we are in the global macro world now, what about China? They've kind of gone from this international growth engine to a domestic disaster. What, what I mean, do you follow this? Do you have any thoughts yeah. uh, or some of the guests you've had, any thoughts? Yeah, some of the people I talk to and some of the managers speak to on the macro side, um, I think, uh, you know, what we're seeing obviously this week is is, a, is an intensification of the concerns around the property side, about the debt deflation, etc. And we have seen um, a policy response in the last couple of days in terms of a 50 basis points cut in, in the bank reserve requirements. Hang Seng, some of the Chinese stocks have rebounded in the last couple of days. I think the big picture here is what's the policy response ultimately? What should it be and what will it be? And China is somewhat constrained, you know, when we've seen this kind of challenge in, in the West, you know, say post the global financial crisis, the policy response was bring rates to zero and quantitative easing. Um, so in, in an essence, that, that would be an obvious policy response in China, um, flood the market with liquidity that would boost asset prices and should reverse the deflationary trend and could help the property market. But they seem to be reluctant to do that because they're worried about, you know, a, a significant weakening in the renminbi. So it's this classic kind of dilemma or trilemma that you can't control all of the different levers of policy. If you want to control the exchange rate, then you're given up control of, of monetary policy. So, at, you know, they, they did allow some weakness in the renminbi last year, but they seem to have stabilized it for now. And they don't seem to be on a path towards, you know, money printing or QE. What they do seem to be doing is making a, a a grab on global manufacturing. So, you know, what we're starting to see, you know, particularly in EVs, you know, we're starting to see in here in Ireland, I'm hearing BYD being advertised on the radio all the time. And, you know, we're seeing the European Union becoming very concerned about the threat, um, you know, Volkswagen under, under serious pressure in Europe, the threat of EVs. So, and, and even speaking to people who, who allocate to China and Chinese equities, making a point that China may not even benefit. These companies may not uh, develop or benefit so much because they'll cut their margins just to, to grab global market share, but it will be um, a, a, a significant uh, competitive threat. And, and, and that would also contribute to that kind of general trend towards uh, protectionism uh, that, that, that we may see. So I think that's the direction that they've gone so far. It's to try and boost manufacturing in certain sectors like uh, batteries and, and EVs, etc., we'll see how that plays out, and we'll see what's the response. You know, the implication is if they're going to have a bigger share of global manufacturing, somebody else has to have a smaller share. So that's Europe and the US, and and Europe and the US won't want to have a smaller share. So how does that play out? So it seems to be their move in terms of policy for the moment, but is that sustainable over time? Probably not. And how does it play out? Um, you know, and and that is. In the short term, probably a little bit of a, a disinflationary force um, at the margin. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. But whether that's you know going to be significant enough of a policy to see China starting to come out of this slump, you know, I I, I don't think so. But uh, but we'll have to see. 
You gave me a little bit of a cryptic topic uh, for kind of this global macro segment, which I don't know whether you feel you've already mentioned uh, or not, but you wrote money market funds. Well, did, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share on money market funds? Well, that was just where I'm saying it, the, the amount of uh, cash we're seeing on the sidelines. And we, yeah, we have seen, I was just looking at the data, there's $6 trillion in, in US money market funds, which is up about a trillion dollars in the last kind of 12 to 18 months. And if you look at bank time deposits, they're up about six hundred billion in the last uh, year or so, and that's where you, I would expect you probably would see anybody who's going to kind of go into a bank uh, account to try and take advantage of a higher yield would, would you know would go into a time deposit. So, you know, if we start moving into this lower, well, not a low rate, but start moving into a, a rate cutting environment, will that be the trigger for investors to you know start to move back into the markets? And is that going to be a boost? But is it for equities and uh, and is it from or or, or or fixed income? You know, certainly for people, you know, in the more mainstream asset management industry, a couple of people I've been talking to were saying like last year was a tough year asset raising because of this phenomenon. That a lot of people just said, well, why why don't I just take the five 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 and a half percent of dollars or four four and a half percent in in euros and not invest in anything, whether it was trend following equities or bonds. So. Well, we see all of that reverse. So, so yeah, that, that, I, I think it's it's going to be interesting. All I can say is, when has asset raising ever been an easy uh, job? Um, I speak from some experience. Let's put it like that. Anyways, all right, let's move on to the trend following uh, update. Uh, we were off to a um, kind of a soft start for CTAs and trend followers in the first 10 days or so of 2024. Since then, we've actually had a quite a nice recovery in performance. All the indices that I uh, or that we track here uh, have uh, turned positive for the year. Although the last couple of days, again, we see a little bit of softness, um, but I think still overall uh, in the black. Best sectors, according to my trend barometer, when I look at that, uh, are softs and stocks. Now, that doesn't always tie in completely um, with what uh, managers will We'll see because timeframes will be different from how I calculate things. But actually, when I look at sort of the managers that I have access to, to uh, following more closely, um, it looks kind of right at the moment. Um, within soft, we have things like Coco doing pretty well. Uh, within equities, obviously, Japan has been on fire. And then at the same time, actually, uh, Hang Seng has uh, had a really sort of a continuing its weakness to some extent. And that's actually also worked out for trend followers on the short side. Now, one of the sectors that I thought could be dividing performance amongst managers uh, this month would be things like fixed income, where I think faster models probably would have gone long um, towards the end of last year, whilst longer term models potentially are still a little bit short. And therefore, because of bonds being off uh, in January, uh, that can make a little bit of a difference. But that's kind of how... I see it, uh, Alan. Feel free to add anything if you have any. No, that would be my thought. I mean, I think we saw that with a little bit of dispersion in December as well. But and those faster models would have benefited then, and they're 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 giving a bit back. And and similar kind of pattern with respect to to the US dollar as well to a lesser extent. Yeah, my own trend barometer finished yesterday at twenty five, so that's still pretty weak. Although it did recover some from the exceptionally low readings below twenty that we saw earlier in the month. Uh, as a Wednesday, um, because we're recording on a Thursday, 
Beta 50 is up 1.17 for the month and therefore the year. Sockgen CTA index up about 95 basis points. Sockgen trend up about 82 basis points. And the short-term traders index is up about 19 basis points. That compared to traditionals where MSCI World is up about 1.08% for the month. Uh, World Government Bond Index is down 1.5% and the S&P 500 is up about 2%. All right, with that, let's uh, move on to the question, which is actually two questions. And it is from uh, Cyprus. Now, the listener did tell me who he is, so that's fine. But he didn't want his name to be uh, on on air, so that's perfectly fine. First of all, uh, he writes, um, Firstly, thank you for a great show. A lot of thought-provoking and educational material here. I've been part of the Management Futures trend-following systematic industry for a decade or so, now taking a much slower pace with it, semi-retired. I fell into it by chance as I met an American gentleman who was uh, who had, had retired to Cyprus, who was well and truly part of the industry, having passed through Commodities Corporation and managed, futures, uh, uh, and managed his own CTA for over 25 years. Once I understood the concept, I was completely converted from my traditional CFA past and I have been keen, a keen follower of all things systematic. I know there's a lot of discussion over the terminology of the various flavors, uh, and I apologize for using them interchangeably. I have been working with him since on our own trading and thoroughly enjoying the ride. Okay, I have two questions. I was speaking with a high net worth friend uh, who has been overly reliant on private banking solutions, of which I'm not a fan, and as a result, has realized the limitations of the 60-40 portfolio the hard way. I have taken some time to go through the concept and the value added of managed futures uh, and CTA and trend. The question he has is what would be a fair allocation to such strategies in a diversified multi-asset portfolio? Yeah, it's a good and who better to ask that question Abs than absolutely and yeah. a previous allocator? That's right, no, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, this is a particular um, bugbear of mine. I mean, if you look at if you look at most multi-asset funds, I would say, or, or if you look at the multi-asset allocations of a lot of private bank offerings, okay, they're not quite a 60-40, but they're very much a derivative of it. It tends to be like fifty to sixty percent equities, maybe twenty percent bonds. There could be some private markets within both the equity and the bond allocation, maybe 10% credit, and very often something like, you know, 5 to 10% in hedge funds. But very often then that would be also including hedge funds that are not necessarily particularly diversifying. Um, they could be market neutral or long short equity or even credit type strategies. So then you get into a much smaller sleeve where you're getting allocations to directional strategies like, like trend and our managed futures or macro. And and why is that like, it's, one of the reasons for that is very often the people running these portfolios come from either an equity background or a fixed income background, and they're not as familiar with trading strategies as like as we are in, in, in our industry. Uh, and also they tend to then have, suffer from some common misperceptions. They might say like, okay, let's go in within the all sector Let's find the highest sharp ratio strategies and we'll allocate to those. Or they might say, well, let's find these strategies that are really good risk-adjusted return performance, but they might be really low vol and it's not going to do a whole lot for the portfolio. So that's a long-winded kind of intro to, to getting to the answer, which is oh, it, it always it, it depends. And, and, and I think you have to always balance kind of the, the right answer from a 
pure portfolio allocation perspective, which would tend to point to a higher allocation to trend and diversifying strategies and balance that with the behavioral element of will the client be able to hold that and be confident enough in holding that through the cycle. And because obviously you don't want to allocate to too much and then clients say, well, I don't really understand it as the, the first time you get into a drawdown. I mean, to, to give a sense on, on, the, on the range of, of kind of allocations, you know, the typical answer is, is kind of 5 to 10%. But I would have said, if you think about asset allocation and, and, and split the assets between what I would call growth assets, um, diversifying assets, and then tactical trading strategies, and managed features macro would be in the latter category. You know, uh, you know, I would say it could be you could reasonably be forty, could be forty twenty forty, forty thirty thirty, or forty forty twenty. But but it's a, it's a number of the order of kind of twenty percent, and and that's twenty percent of portfolio risk. So uh, an important point I would say to be conscious of is to think about the risk allocation that you've got to the strategy and not just the notional allocation. Because one of the big downsides and, and problems with the, the 60-40 and with all of these types of portfolios is they're dominated by equity risk. And that's fine if that's what you want, but but you're kind of positioning this as multi-asset, which kind of gives the connotation of that the returns are going to be influenced by lots of different assets. But because equity vol is you know 16% and bond vol, depending on, on your duration, might only be 6 or 7 you're getting a lot more risk in equities. So when you start looking at the diversifying sleeve, okay, you could have uh, 40% in there, but if it's at five vol, that's not going to move the, the, the needle a lot. So think about the risk contribution. And I, I would say, um, I would say, you know, 15 to 20% of portfolio risk in these types of strategies would, would be meaningful in terms of moving the, the needle uh, and and uh, it could be higher or lower depending on the client and and their appetite and their and, and their understanding of the strategies. But but it's not like five uh, percent in notional terms. That's just uh, at the margin. Yeah, no, I like that answer. Obviously, I'm probably a little bit uh, to the higher side of that. And the reason I say that is partly we. I, I update on 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 our side uh, a little fun experiment every month and. Uh, and the experiments we thought, because we get these questions a, a lot, is to say, well, you know, we we can obviously say what we what we think is kind of a good average allocation uh, if you have stocks, bonds, and managed futures. But what if timing was an issue? Meaning, what if you really got timed it right or wrong? So the way we thought about that was to say, well, why don't we just say what's the optimal allocation? And and you know, in this case, we're just basing it on the higher sharp of the portfolio. If you started just before a crisis or if you started right after a crisis. So we just say, okay, before the tech bubble or after the tech bubble or before the uh, great financial crisis or after the great financial crisis, just to see some extreme starting points. And in that case, and I don't recall the, the number specifically, but certainly before and after the tech uh, crisis, the allocation, and of course, we're using our own WMA strategy as a, as a proxy for trend following, but you do get quite a high allocation to it. But um, I think it's like 16 to 18% uh, allocation um, before and after, meaning it's incredibly consistent. So the trend following part hardly changes. What changes is the allocation you should have had to stocks and bonds. Then when you look at the great financial crisis from from uh, 07-ish uh, and, and 09 as starting points, 
um, you actually get a higher allocation to our strategy, um, but that's because bond you get zero allocation to bonds, uh, really. Um, but you do still get a quite a big uh, change between stocks and bonds because initially you you, you should have had some bonds, I think, and then uh, after 09 you should have had uh, no bonds. So, anyways, I do I think the point I'm trying to say is that. I don't think 20-25% is a bad number, but I would also argue I think that allocation is the more consistent of the three assets in a simple multi-asset between stocks, bonds, and yeah. futures. So, the other thing I would say is, I mean, I'm saying that 20% in the context of the information that's been given for kind of a multi-asset. Um, I mean, I do work with some investors who will go 50% uh, growth strategies or growth assets, 50% diversifying strategies, and they're comfortable with that. So... Um, it's not it's not one number that 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 fits for everybody. It's uh, you have to take into account the uh, the behavioural element, uh, as I say. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, then uh, our listener has one more question. Follow up. He says, given the straight jacked of uh, of the EU regulation, um, what are the better options uh, to gain exposure? Uh, Man, Winston, Don Capital all have usage, but do you have any uh, good resource or resource or insights to help uh, the selection process? I have one suggestion, Alan, but but you may come across this more. Are there any places where public places where you can go and have a look at at some of these uh, funds nowadays? Um, in terms of like a fund supermarket, that, that type of thing, or, or what? You mean? Well, okay, so I'll give you my resource. So what I was thinking of, and I don't know if you have to register. Um, I, I think you have to register, but I'm, I have a feeling that these gentlemen uh, will will even if it was for for accredited investors, they would be fine. But uh, my um, uh, my source would be the Kepler uh, database, um, uh, which I think lists all the usage funds. Uh, now again. Uh, I would say if you don't have to be restrained by usage, I think the offshore vehicles of these managers will be cheaper. Um, you may have monthly liquidity instead of daily liquidity, but you shouldn't really worry about that if you have a long-term investment horizon. But yeah, I would say that database is is, is one that I uh, would say probably gives very good overview of, of usage uh, funds for sure. No, that's right. It 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 is a good, good comprehensive list uh, and has some uh, analysis. And obviously, they have their own platform with certain managers uh, as well. So I think that that's um, that's certainly the case. I mean, you can get the usage performance data uh, on lots of platforms now. The FT as well. I mean, I think in terms of the question around. Um, uh, any insights as to, to to how to make the, the the allocation decision? You know, I think within the usage space, there's there's obviously a couple of there's the general question, the general issues around how to make the decisions to allocating in this space, which we kind of know about in terms of you know multi manager or not, or allocating to a few managers or trend only or diversified. So so they're all the typical things, but also you know when. When we're working with investors, we're, we're you know we're highlighting that often in in the kind of this space, investors don't have an, have a facility to do a managed account, so it's a fund only. So when you think about it, um, you really got to be conscious of the level of volatility again. So I'd emphasize that because obviously, you know, if you can allocate through managed accounts, the manager's vol doesn't really matter because you can lever it up or down to whatever vol you want. But when you're constrained uh, to allocate in funds, 
uh, you're getting more bang for your buck if you go with the Harval uh, offering. So, so that's certainly one important thing to think about. Obviously, the fees and, um, you know, uh, the, particularly with usage, the fees are generally a bit higher than the, the, than the offshore vehicle. And then obviously, are you getting the commodity exposure or not? So, so we've got different approaches. Some managers took out commodities because there were issues around that in Europe, but increasingly uh, managers are now, you know, accessing commodities either via um, swaps or certificates, but but basically overcoming that challenge. So it's certainly, certainly it, as a general rule, you're better off having the commodities in there. Um, so, 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 so they would be the kind of the, the things to think about. It is difficult to get access as a private investor uh, in, in Europe. It's not like the US where you can just buy a lot of different strategies through the brokerage account. You have to go through either direct to the manager or through uh, a wealth manager. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a matter of going through the due diligence process as you would with other strategies, but just through, through the lens of the, the, the particulars of usage. One thing I would just add, given the fact that I work with usage uh, every day, uh, is just to be aware of that there are some funds where you can actually buy them directly. You may have to have the subscription document sent via your financial advisor, um, but where you can buy them directly and therefore you don't pay any extra fees to custodians or banks or whatever, um, because I do get a feeling that if you ask your bank to do it or or a platform, they're going to charge you something for doing it, but you don't in many cases, don't really need them. But yeah. anyways. There are All a right, couple. Yeah, I know, I know in interactive brokers, you can invest directly in a small number, but it's not very large. And there are a couple of other platforms in the UK, like AJ Bell and some of these. But, but, but uh, yeah, it's not, as I say, it's we're, we're, the industry hasn't evolved to, to, to be like the US mutual fund market by any means. All right. Let's move on to actually the topics of the day. One is, uh, the first one actually is uh, still within the um, kind of the playground of uh, managed futures because I sent you a question yesterday. um, And the question was inspired by the fact that because many equity indices have recently come out of a drawdown, um, lots of people were, you know, posting charts about how long in days had the recent drawdown been and how long do equity drawdowns typically last? And I didn't have myself any particular stats on what about um, managed futures, trend followers, um, what, what about drawdown length? We talk about drawdown depth, but we don't always talk about drawdown length. Um, my my hunch is that uh, they're certainly shorter than equity uh, drawdowns on average, but I don't have the numbers, but I know you may do. So, um, so I'm excited to hear what you found, which well, I noticed. Brace yourself. It's, I don't think the numbers are that exciting. I mean, I only did a very cursory uh, analysis um, last night, this morning. Um, but, um, I mean, to give context, as you say, the, the, the subchain trend, and I've only looked at it since 2000 and based off monthly data, so it's not as, as uh, minute as, as it could be. You know, generally... I. I in terms of magnitude, certainly equity equity drawdowns are much bigger in terms of the magnitude. You know, if you think about over the last 20, 24 years, you had, you know, 07, 09, um, that was about 51%. You know, 2000, 2002, about 44%. Um, you had another drawdown um, during COVID, 24% or so. Another drawdown um, last year, sorry, 20, uh, 2022. So we've seen... Whereas uh, the the largest drawdowns for the suction trend index are, are of the order of kind of 
the top five or, or the 15 to 20 percent so much bigger drawdowns in terms of the magnitude in terms of the duration over that period actually pretty similar both the the, the longest uh, drawdown in both cases was uh, I think 72, 73 months, so so six years, which surprised me because when I did the, the, the largest drawdown for, for for trend following did rumble on, um, quite you know uh, in that period from uh, you know twenty fifteen to twenty twenty one. Now some some of the some of the managers got out of drawdown through that period before the index did, so that's why I had to kind of go and check that uh, again. Uh, because there was a couple of upswings in performance for for for, for um, trend following, but for the index as a whole, it did go on that long. Um, you know, it, the other interesting thing is when you look at it, um, uh, the 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 top ten trend index is in drawdown eighty five percent of the time in that period, which is not surprising. We always say trend following is always in drawdown or the majority of the time. Whereas the S and P was in drawdown seventy three percent of the time, which is probably higher than if you took if you took a long term perspective going back before two thousand, I would say that number would be a little bit lower because obviously we had two big uh, equity drawdowns in, in the two thousands, and in terms of the number of drawdowns, we've had twenty eight for the S and P and twenty three for the SOC gen trend um, in that period uh, overall. So I mean, what do you what do you make of all of that? I I, I didn't come up with uh, it didn't make me. Uh, Feel any more or less inclined to invest in either equities or, 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 or the stock chain trend? I know you do see some analysis around, you know, the stock chain trends in a drawdown of a, of whatever. So now's a good time to invest. Well, of course, what we should have done, Alan, what we should have done is to say, okay, that's fine, but what happens if you do fifty fifty of those two? What happened to the length of drawdown? I think that's that's where the magic happens, um, at least. Uh, but the other thing is. I, th- I seem to remember that I once saw an article of someone saying, well, did you realize that the Amazon stock that has gone up, I don't know how many thousands percent in the last 25 years, actually is below an all-time high, like 95% of the time. So, so, so it's, it's, you know, so drawdowns is a funny thing. It really is. No, I agree uh, with you. I mean, that, that yeah. was one of the points, like, is drawdown yeah. the right measure, the right thing exactly. to focus on? And, you know, even when we had that drawdown, in trend following in that that long one, I don't, my, my recollection of it maybe it wasn't even as painful as the one that was before that, the twenty eleven to twenty fourteen, which seemed to be more a, a painful one for investors. You know, that's just my own perspective. But you know, I, I certainly think it's not just drawdown. It's like what's going on in other asset classes, how the rest of the portfolio is doing. Um, are you seeing any? You know, you can still have positive years within the drawdown. So I think as long as people are seeing. You know, progress in the right direction. Drawdown isn't necessarily the be all and end all, but it is. It is uh, certainly in it uh, one relevance. Well, well, you and you and I talked to a manager last year, and people have to go and check out and guess who it might be. But we we talked to one of the manager manager last year uh, in our CTA series, and I think they had been in a drawdown for more than ten years, actually. Uh, so I'm not going to say the name. People can do their homework, but uh, so you know. But I think this is when you once you go to those extremes. I mean, that's going to hurt business, right? But yeah, I mean, all strategies comes with drawdowns, and and of course, some of them can be uh, dragged out a bit. Doesn't mean that they are severe, and it's just kind of more boring than anything else. Um, good. All right, let's move on to something that is not related to managed futures, as far as I can tell. Um, something a paper that you sent 
over to me, which I don't think I had time to glance through it because you sent a few papers. Um, but this one, um, I thought, yeah, I'm going to leave that with Alan. And um, so tell me about this one uh, and why you wanted to talk about it. It's a paper called Stocks for the Long Run Dash Really. Yeah. Um, well, actually, it's called, I think that, that might have been uh, the, the, the title I put on it. It's called Stocks for the Long Run. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um it's by a guy called Edward Macquarie, who's a professor at Santa Clara University in California. Um, I saw this, being re- this paper being referenced before Christmas, and I didn't have a chance to read it at the time, so it's on my mind to go back and have a look at it. And it's really, um, it's, a, it's a reassessment of what the long-term evidence on equity performance and the equity risk premium is. And um, the title, Stocks for the Long Run, is obviously... Uh, a hat tip to Jeremy Siegel, who's wrote the book um, that I have here beside me. It's you know, and it's really the it, it, it was the piece of research, piece of work that really formalised um, that you know from 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 a data and a research perspective the case for having equities at the core of portfolios. You know, it really put the data um, in in a very clear. Uh, place that showed the, the long-term outperformance of equities. And it showed not just kind of a long-term outperformance of equities over fixed income and cash, but also that there seemed to be a fairly stable long-term real equity return over kind of three long-term periods. Like he showed that the, the real return on equities in the US was about six and a half, seven percent over three distinct, you know, I can't remember, maybe 70-year periods. And also it showed um, that your kind of risk of holding equities went down the longer the holding period, you know, the the, the volatility of outcomes uh, declined. And also the likelihood that you would outperform fixed income increased the, the longer the hold, holding period. So that's why it, it very much became a no-brainer stocks for the long run. Um, well, Edward Macquarie has reassessed that and his paper is about the fact that you've got new data available particularly for the 19th century. Now, this might, some people might immediately switch, switch off and say, well, who cares if it's the 19th century? But bear with me for a moment. And it goes back and it says there was some flaws, not flaws, but some shortcomings in the data that Jeremy Siegel used back in the 19th century. And that there's a broader data set available now, um, more stocks, more data on more bonds in the US stocks that traded outside the US and he gives the example of a stock, the second bank of the United States, which wasn't included in the original analysis somehow. It was the largest stock in the US before the panic of 1837. It, it accounted for 30% of the market cap. So kind of like the Magnificent Seven all in one. And that stock went from $120 to $150 during this panic of 1837. So, you know, it does sound like some fairly meaningful emissions, you'd have to say. In, in the old data. Anyway, so when he looks at, at the long-term performance again, he's, he splits the, the kind of data up into three periods, 1790 to 1940, um, 1940 to 1981, and 1981 onwards. And, and basically what he says was, unlike the Siegel paper, which would have said there's that kind of 7% real um, um, return from equities and a fairly consistent uh, equity risk premium, um, that, that 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 consistency is now not there when you look at the data again. He does say that in the period 1940 to 1981, certainly equities outperformed quite a bit. 
uh, uh, relative to bonds. Um, now, obviously, the starting point for yields uh, was very low. That was post-World War II, and the Fed had been basically uh, enacting yield curve control. So bond yields were unusually low in 1940, not as low as we saw in, in 2020, but they were low. So, so, And then, obviously, the end of that period is you know, 1981, when yields get up to get up to 18%. So definitely a period where bond yields go from 2% to 18% is going to be very tough. But it was a good period for, for, for equities as well. Whereas he, now, the way he describes it since 1981, they've been pretty even, about the same. Now, I was a bit dubious about, on that assertion. I'm not sure if that's quite correct. They were certainly, they were pretty close up to around 2009, but certainly I would have said equities have, have powered ahead since then. But Anyway, notwithstanding that, and then if you go back to the 1792 to 1941 period, actually bonds did better. So, I mean, what to make of this, if if anything? You know, firstly, I would say about the 1800s. Obviously, it's gone back a long time, so people might say, you know, that's just too long ago to be to be very relevant. I mean, it it, it is actually interesting if you look at the long term economic history of the U.S. and the world. Um, there's an economist, Robert Gordon, who has written about this. And basically, economic growth accelerated from 1870 onwards. Uh, it, was, it was after the U.S. Civil War. And this century, 1870 to 1970, there was a boom in innovation, in productivity, you know, of the likes of which we've never seen ever. And Robert Gordon, I, I, in his book, he points to another economist. He says, between AD 1, so basically, you know, time of Christ, whatever, uh, since then to 1820, economic growth grew by 0.06% per annum. So that's like 6% per century. So that's like, basically, he said nothing happened for for, uh, for 18 centuries, and then growth took off. So, so that would be one reason to explain why equities were more challenged in the 19th century. You know, economic growth wasn't as strong back then. We did have some periodic periods of deflation, you had the U.S. Civil War as well, so so it does make sense that that would have been a more challenging period. Does that mean anything for investors now? Well, for sure, you could still have a civil war. You can't, you know, couldn't rule that out. You could still have deflation again. So it's not totally irrelevant, I would say. The second thing that that he he, he does was in the Siegel book. He says Siegel also looked at rolling returns. You know, not just taking these three distinct periods, but taking rolling ten year, twenty year, fifty year. And in Siegel's uh, analysis, uh, there was a kind of a, I think you said that like a three in five chance that stocks would outperform. But if you held them for 30 years, it was a nine in 10 chance that, that stocks would outperform bonds. So again, very compelling, makes it kind of a no brainer uh, to, to be long stocks if you're a long term investor, uh, almost to the exclusion of anything else. But, you know, when, when uh, Edward Macquarie reruns the data, he doesn't find that. Um, that, that, that those rolling periods are as, as strong, certainly not up to kind of two and three or, or, or nine and 10 or whatever it was. So, so, so that is one thing. And the second thing he does is he points to the international evidence. And the international evidence is much less um, uh, supportive or about this very strong equity risk premium. And he points to, I'd have to pull up the numbers there, but he points to kind of 20, 30-year periods across lots of different uh, markets. For example, like the lowest equity risk premium observed internationally over 20, 30, and 50 years. So like there was a minus 2% over 20 years in Australia. So, so stocks underperformed bonds by 2% for, 
for, for the 20 years ending in 2008. So, you know, we're not talking about 1800s anymore. We're talking about recent past or in, uh, you know, in Italy, stocks underperformed by 5% per annum uh, for the 20 years to 1979. We obviously all know about Japan. Uh, we know about kind of, uh, you know, Germany and the war, all of that. But the point here is that he's saying is that this perception that it's kind of an unwritten rule, a law, uh, a law of the markets, that there's an equity risk premium of about 4% for stocks is not there if you go back long enough and if you assess it far enough in the world, which is, which, which is, I think is, 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 is a fair point and, and very interesting. The final part of his paper, which I felt was really interesting too, and which is kind of relevant in our world and from an asset allocation perspective. And he says, what's important is not, you can't just say there's an equity risk premium of 4% or whatever. He says it's very much regime dependent, you know, and we are in a regime at the moment, which is favorable for equities, but the regime that was, and, and, and the, the 1940 to 1980 period was, was very much favorable for equities vis-a-vis bonds, but the, the 1800s were not. And, you know, so he said, what he makes the point, which I think is a good one, like we naturally think about looking at more and more data to give a better sense of the sample, that this is a larger sample of history. And he said, that's not maybe not the right way to look at it, because if you mix two different regimes, you're kind of getting an average, but that's not that informative. So if you take, <clears throat> take the perspective of, say, correlation, for example, and he shows the kind of the 20-year correlations between bonds and equities. They were as, as, as high as plus 0.9 back in the 1800s. And then went to, I think, negative 0.9 in the more recent regime. So is it, and equally, if you're mixing kind of a, a very high uh, equity risk premium with a very low one, and you're saying the average is four or whatever, that maybe that's not as conducive or, or as helpful as to say, well, in a favorable regime, it will be this, X. But in an unfavorable regime, it might be Y. You know, that, that could feel much more um, uh, information as, as an allocator. So his kind of message is, once you accept the premise that stocks can disappoint, you know, this all equity portfolio is less of a no-brainer. It's interesting because the other people who've done a lot of work on, on this are Eloy Dim, uh, Dimson and Ibbotson. And they wrote this, long-term study of 100 years of uh, asset class returns, and they call it the triumph of the optimists, which I think is a good way of putting it, because if you're going all in on equities, you're just taking, you are taking that optimistic view. Yes, most of the time you will be right, but but that's not to say it's a rule that you're guaranteed over the next 30 years uh, if you hold that, that you're going to do very well. It could be a favorable regime. It might not be. So I think that, that the whole um, thought around what's the outlook for the regime is very important. And I, I think from that perspective, you know, th- that this idea of being equity heavy and equity centric, even the concept of w- when people talk about expected returns, you know, the expected returns on equities is eight, the expected returns on bonds is four. So then you say, well, why would you ever invest in bonds? Because your you expected returns is eight. You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense, you know. But but that's a statistical term, you know. That um, that's just saying that the mean historically is is a. But it might be misconstrued as something else. Whereas it might be more helpful to say to somebody, well, in a favorable regime, it could be ten. 
in an unfavorable re- regime, it might be zero over the next 20 years. Uh, and make up your own mind as to how much of an optimist you feel like, uh, and that will determine uh, your, your asset allocation. But I do think it helps uh, the, the frame the discussion around adding diversifying strategies as well, not just purely looking at the average of the data over the last so many years. Yeah, we're going to spend the last five, seven minutes uh, on that because there's another paper you cited and uh, from our friends over at AQR. I mean, you touch on regimes and I think that and this is super important, right? And 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 we all know that maybe the last 20 years has been a little bit, because that's what we kind of remember. And I think we all know that it, they've been a little bit unusual uh, for many reasons. And also, so I'm just thinking at the moment, when you just think of how much performance of equity markets are driven by, as you mentioned, the magnificent, magnificent seven and how much money goes into those stocks or flows just purely from... Uh, products being created to mirror, you know, an index where probably uh, you can th- uh, synthetically design them where you put, uh, you know, most of the flows into uh, the Magnificent Seven because maybe you don't want to buy all 500 stocks in the S&P 500, for example. And then on top of that, you have massive concentration of capital because managers like Vanguard and BlackRock I mean, they own huge amount of these magnificent seven stocks. I think that um, you know Vanguard owns eight percent of Apple or something like that, which is um, which is crazy. Um, and and these products are not price sensitive. I mean, they're just driven by flows. Um, so what happens when the inflows we've seen for for years and years maybe at some point turns to outflows? Who knows? Um, and of course, within the magnificent uh, magnificent seven. Uh, and and other big companies, uh, we've also been through a regime where buybacks has been the big thing. I mean, I think Apple is buying back 80 billion of stocks every year. So, I mean, it's just a crazy time uh, in many respects. Um, so anyways, we'll see. But actually, that is a quite of a nice uh, lead-in to the AQR paper where they kind of ask whether the next decade will be uh, you know, like the last one. So it kind of uh, um, plays a little bit on on that. So I'll, I'll let you briefly talk about... Yeah, um, well, I won't spend that. too much time, but it, it's basically asking the question, you know, what's the likelihood of, of the returns that we've seen in US equities over the last decade or so being repeated? And, you know, we often say, oh, it's, it's going to be hard for, for equities to do as well. But what they actually do is decompose the returns into a number of different factors or, or, or the different constituents that drive equity returns, which are, um, you know, the, the, uh, the dividend yields, the real earnings growth, whether there's any multiple ex- expansion, uh, and then the, um, the the kind of the risk-free rate. And and basically, you know, they, they go through it, I won't go through it all in detail, but they go through it all bit by bit. Uh, and, 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 you know, over the period 2013 to 2023, uh, obviously you did have real earnings growth as being a key, a, an important driver, but you also had significant multiple expansion. And um, so, you know, can those multiples expand by as much going forward? You'd have to say that would be very difficult. And then it's a, a question of, you know, well, what about um, uh, the other constituents? You know, uh, the, the conclusion is the last 10 years were unusually favorable. And when you look at the building blocks, it's going to be hard to repeat such a positive performance. And that's not to say they're saying stocks are going to drop by 50% or anything. They're just saying that 
that that expect more muted returns if once you do a fundamental decomposition of, of the fundamental drivers of equity returns, it points to more muted returns over the next 10 years. But that is even without any potential regime change, uh, as we've been talking about. That's w- w- within the, the, the current kind of regime. But I, I think they're the ones who also go on then to ask this question about whether you really need diversifiers in the 60-40 portfolio and, and whether CTAs are essentially just vault dampeners. Um, or maybe that's another... That's probably possibly as we're up in time. I think that might be a topic we'll have to come back to on another day. I think too. <laughs> too yeah, much, no, too much to say on that. Maybe. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Can you give us a little bit of a teaser well, in well, terms here, of that? I, I, I suppose think it's to, to tee it up is I had a conversation in the Allocator series with um, Joe Prendergast, a good buddy, the most recent one. They're a wealth management firm here in Dublin, and he was making a point. Uh, you know, in the, in terms of how they run portfolios. It's broadly 50% growth assets, 50% kind of safe uh, diversifying assets. And so it's kind of a derivative of the 60-40 uh, portfolio. He was making a point that if actually, if you look at it on a rolling five-year basis, that portfolio does pretty well. You know, it does very well historically at, at kind of always having a, an above zero return. So um, that a lot of the time, you know, us in the managed futures industry, I'll include all of us here as 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 part, part of that, you know, when we're making a case, often we'll say, oh, well, it'll improve your sharp ratio. And then the question is, well, is that relevant for a private investor? You know, as, as you say, you can't eat a sharp ratio. Uh, it doesn't mean a smoother ride. But, you know, ju- just because something dampens vol, is that enough? Equally, we often point to very long data series uh, when we, you know, point to the benefit of managed features. Say, look, over the last 24 years, it did X for your portfolio. And people might say, well... You know, my time horizon is more like five to 10 years. So how relevant is that? So what I was going to do, and maybe we'll do it again, is can you still make the case for these strategies, which I think you can, even just ignoring the fact that you can get, obviously get uh, sharp improvement and vol reduction, um, just purely from the lens of the outcomes on, on a five-year basis. Because uh, I think that's, that's the challenge that you get. Uh, you know, certainly when I speak to some investors, they'll say, Oh, do we need these liquid oils anymore? You know, your bond yields have gone up. They're just there to, you know, you know, what are they there for? So I, I do think there is that perception. It's, you know, on the one extreme, you have people on this podcast who'll say trend following plus nothing. But a lot of the investors I speak to are more in the, if you're trying to incrementally get them to allocate to these strategies. And uh, these are the kind of the challenges and the pushback that, that I often hear. Yeah, no, that's fair. We'll definitely pick this up. Uh, just remind me, Alan, next time we speak, um, because of course we do want to certainly dig into the whole point about the what it really means to diversify into non-correlated strategies and what that does to the compound uh, rate of return, uh, which may smooth the, the the shop, but but it does a lot of other things, which uh, I think you and I can agree on. All right. Good stuff. Well, before we uh, pack our bags and head for Miami, Alan, let me just say that if you enjoy these conversations, then um, please go to your favorite podcast platform and leave a rating and review. Uh, We uh, always need them and we always appreciate them and we always read them. Um, And of course, if you have a question um, for any of us, uh, you can uh, email it to info at toptradersonplug.com. And I will get it to the appropriate person and we'll bring it up on the show. And uh, finally, next week, I will be recording from Miami with Mark. 
Uh, probably not in person, but anyways. Um, so if you have any questions for Mark, uh, then do send them over and I will do my very best, even if I'm on the road, to um, to make it happen. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.